We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hello and welcome to The Interruption, the Global Institute for Tomorrow podcast. Following Chandran's never-ending travels around the world, we're going to talk about his recent visit to the US, where he gave talks about his book, The Sustainable State, and also to Canada, where he spoke at a conference organized by the Foreign Ministry on the Asian middle class. So, Chandran, what did you take from your visit? Well, uh, perhaps uh, before going into the content of my talks, uh, I thought uh, the thing that I'd like to share is uh, the impression I got visiting uh, two countries, close neighbors, and the, the very distinct difference in the way one is treated. And so I thought I would share with people that um, I landed in LA and it took me two and a half hours to get out of immigration. And essentially one is treated like someone who should not be visiting. And if you do get to visit the United States, then you have to be essentially tested uh, and put through the, the mill. Now, I was uh, very amused by this because three weeks before I was actually, we spent, I spent two and a half hours at the immigration in Mumbai. But that's not India trying to make you unwelcome. It's a legendary Indian sort of bureaucracy and just, it's the Indian way and one kind of laughs it off, though it's uh, not that funny if it's at 2 a.m. But in the United States, uh, it's very different um, and it's almost menacing. The, uh, the way you're treated. Uh, the immigration officers shout at you. Uh, you're made to feel that uh, at any point, if you disregard any of the instructions, you can be taken away. And that's not just me speaking. Uh, being in a queue for two and a half hours, you speak to a lot of people around you. And I was very intrigued that uh, although they have issued uh, um, uh, electronic systems now to scan everybody, etc., and you have to put your passport in. What then happens is I put all my details in, nothing said I was rejected, and then out comes a slip. But that slip then has a cross right across your, your, your face. That's a nice way to welcome someone. Uh, and that cross immediately means you have to go in the, the long line. And then you're ushered to the long line, and that's two and a half hours. And I thought, well, it might be just, you know, dirty foreigners like me uh, who have to put up with this nonsense. But next to me was uh, a, a woman of Nepali descent uh, studying law in the United States, green card. And I noticed that she was absolutely scared. She lives in the United States, um, speaks with an American accent. All intention and purposes, I could tell she was American, she, but she was not a white person. And she was really frightened. And I said, why are you so nervous? And she said, uh, under this system, now that I've got the cross, I can turn up at the immigration counter. And depending on the preferences of the officer, I could be told I'm not allowed back in. So I was really interested. For me, it was rather uh, rather different position. If they told me I was not allowed in, no problem, I'll just go home. You know, I don't need to be here. I also noticed that one other thing, which is very interesting. I noticed four or five others uh, speaking with American accents in the queue adjacent to me. And they all had, I looked carefully, they all had American passports. So this is not green card holders. So I was wondering, why on earth are they in the same line with me? And then someone told me they're Hispanic. It's American citizens. 
speaking with American accents, dressed like the American, average American, Hispanics in the same queue as me, the great unwashed. So that was uh, very interesting. So I mentioned that because it's both amusing but also interesting to see American citizens being treated so bad. But the, the point is the menacing mentality of the immigration officials. So then I'll then say uh, quickly that then I go to Canada a few days later, about five, six days later, uh, expecting maybe the same thing. But my God, I was shocked. I was shocked by the friendliness. I was shocked by the speed. And I was so surprised at how immigration people went out of their way to welcome you to their country. And this is how it should be everywhere in the world. When visitors come, people should be welcome. That is not to mean we shouldn't have Im immigration checks. But you know, in the American case, I had spent uh, money, time, getting a visa through the American embassy. That is a rigorous identity check. I should not then have to turn up at the airport and have a machine tell me that now I'm Ill ineligible to have my visa be the validation of my entry and I have to go into, uh, into a queue. In Canada, it was completely opposite. I had my visa. It was, uh, I have to say, the Canadian process rather torturous, but that's visa applications. But when I went there, that torturous process I had to go through in Hong Kong paid off because there's hardly any uh, procedures in terms of trying to you know, put me in some long line and check me and make me feel like a criminal. And then I thought it was a real difference. But it also, for me, I exemplified such a difference in culture between the two countries that are such strong neighbors. There's so much aggression, unwillingness now in the United States to accept foreigners, fear, and the Canadians were completely different. I mean, they were so friendly, it was almost scary. <laughs> Okay, so we've got two neighbors, like you say, very similar culturally, yet it seems that they have different worldviews when it comes to foreigners, certainly at least in their airports. Now, what does that say about the countries as a whole to you? Well, it said to me a couple of things. I think the United States uh, is scared, is scared of the world. Uh, it's consumed by its toxic politics. Uh, every, every conversation was about uh, Democrats and Republicans. There's really very little interest in the outside world apart from which country was a threat. Uh, there was no interest in the positive aspects of other countries joining the world, uh, being uh, prosperous, etc. Everything was about fear, threats, uh, China, uh, but predominantly, I see the conversation was about his toxic politics. And this is the week before the, the news we received this week that the Mueller report said uh, essentially uh, vindicated Donald Trump. And it's so divisive that essentially even my American friends and the audiences I spoke to admitted that it has essentially emptied the public space in terms of uh, public discourse about things that are anything but about the parochial toxic politics in the United States. So you don't have conversations about the bigger things uh, in the world of more interest. And even the, you know, the sort of philosophical discussions, everything is down to whose side are you on? Do you support them? Do you not support them? And fearful of the rest of the world. So that for me was very interesting. 
The Canadians, of course, being a smaller country, also very isolated from the rest of the world. But, you know, uh, they did, to their credit, the foreign ministry organized a conference to discuss the rising Asian middle class and to understand. And, but I did tell the Canadians that, uh, because I found that really interesting during my talk, and I'll speak about the comments I made, but there was, across the board, a fear of China. And I tried to remind the Chinese, the Canadians, that their exports are energy, wood, minerals. Their biggest trading partner is probably a country called China. So I tried to remind the Canadians that uh, Canada needs China more than China needs Canada, so they have to choose. But to demonize China and be fearful and present it as we have different values, and then at the same time want economic ties, is uh, being rather hypocritical. So they have to decide. If your values are so much superior, which I think is a statement of arrogance, then you can choose not to do business with people who you think represent either you know, uh, rigid gov governance system that you don't like. So that was interesting. But the Canadians uh, were much more open to a bigger discussion, understood the nuances of the points. But their fear of China, I thought, was very interesting. And I think, given how friendly Canadians are to foreigners, I think they should extend that friendliness and acceptance and curiosity towards a large country like China and understand it more, rather than um, take a higher moral ground or try to fall into the trap of demonizing it. Mm. So based on what you said, it sounds a lot like the political environment of, of a country can really shape the, the way the populace right. and the government sees That's other right. countries, right, external countries. So in your opinion, how should these kind of political environments be guided to change the nation state? And how is that possible? Well, I think it's a process depending on the political economy. So in the United States, the, the national psyche has essentially been immersed in, for decades in its exceptionalism. We are the chosen people. We are the, uh, the house on the hill. And then at the same time, then reinforced through you know, uh, a whole slew of different uh, factors uh, with fear of the outside world. So it's sort of slightly contradictory. On one hand, we're exceptional, we're the best, we're the strongest, we've got the strongest military and army, but absolutely petrified of the rest of the world. And Donald Trump perhaps has made that more exemplified with the America first, etc. But I do think if you have decades of that sort of behavior, and that sort of belief systems, irrespective of us as foreigners seeing the United the Americans as divided into Republicans and Democrats, one thing they do share is their exceptionalism. One thing they do share is the fear of the rest of the world. One area where Democrats and Republicans come together now is bashing China. So when you have that, uh, then I do think you develop, and I can't you know, uh, put my finger on it, but you do create a national psyche of aggression, menace, and essentially not trusting anybody, but having superficiality as a way to address uh, issues. And then, with the political divide now, you create that. So, to answer your question, I think it is, in all countries, 
create this. I think three weeks ago I mentioned in a podcast about China. What China has done is essentially get its people to transform into a different, uh, from where they came from a low base. And I think I particularly talked about respect for public goods, the trains, the toilets. And you can change that, but you can change that for a good or a bad. And whilst the United States and other Western countries often criticize China and saying, oh, the state is imposing this and changing it. But what I've seen typically is they have helped the largest populations in the world create a net positive by changing behaviors towards essentially a collective coexistence. In a country like the United States, a, a, a different form of a national psyche has developed which in my view is not befitting what is clearly a great nation. And it's a great nation that has now become immersed in fear and intimidation and essentially very superficial conversations. Whereas in Canada, which is of course much smaller, and I can't remember what the, exactly the number of the percentage of the Canadian population, I think it's a large amount that live within close proximity to the US border. Um, there is, uh, you could kind of explain it away by saying small population, large, uh, a large uh, uh, country. Um, you can explain that it's easier perhaps to forge a certain sort of identity, etc. But you, you probably know the Canadians, that's English speaking and the French speaking, etc. But in Canada, you didn't feel this. You felt, I felt a greater diversity of opinions on things. Uh, a willingness to engage in a much wider, broader discussion about the world. Though the one thing that sort of maybe disappointed me was the fear of China, which seemed to be spread throughout. So I think countries do develop an identity, a psyche, some of it engineered, some of it uh, through the process of essential national identity building. And when you don't have that, obviously that is uh, a disbenefit. But when you have that and you are not essentially marshalling it to essentially create positive outcomes, then I do think at least at this stage in the United States, you create this atmosphere, which at least as foreigner, one feels uh, unwelcome and one feels almost that the conversations here are not enriching. Okay, well, fantastic, thank you. I think so we've talked about briefly uh, your your point of conversation in Canada. So maybe let's talk about now about the content of your talks in the United States. So you mentioned this idea that it's possible to engineer the, uh, the outcomes of a country, right? Now, you talked, about, you talked about sustainability and how it's been synonymized with environmental protectionism. Now, to me, given just how prevalent the sustainability narrative is, it no longer just encompasses environmental protectionism. It seems like it's almost a deliberate ignoring of of the wider themes of sustainability by conflating the two. Now, is that what you came across in the States? Is that what you, what you saw? Yeah, I mean, if I was being very harsh, I would say it was deliberate. But if I was to give uh, the benefit of the doubt, then I would argue that um, it is quite a sophisticated sort of pivoting of thinking around environmental sustainability. So if I was uh, not to be too unkind to the Americans, I would say this is a discussion that is not commonly held. But where I would think, where I was, I'm being critical is when I explain it in the United States and make it clear what the distinctions are, there is a knee-jerk reaction. 
And that knee-jerk reaction is where I think the public intellectual space is unwelcome. There isn't a public intellectual space, and the platforms where I went and even spoke to in a business in a, in, a, in a business school in one of the largest universities in the USA are unused to this discussion and almost unwelcoming of these discussions, although at a superficial level, uh, everyone sort of says, oh, this is interesting. But they, they are unwilling to go deeper and accept it as a probable area for further analysis and discussion. So uh, I gave the example in the United States of essentially the chapter in the book. I think it's my ch chapter one where I separate the definitions of environment and sustainability. And to make my point, I said in California, if one looks at the future scenarios, particularly in terms of climate change and the predictions that the fires and the droughts will get more intense, then obviously there's a sustainability challenge here, which uh, requires policy intervention. For And for that, it, it is not about uh, how much water we use, but more importantly about will you be allowed because you care, you have the financial means to live in fire risk areas with great views away from populations, which have been supported by infrastructure of the state and where fires then occur, the cost of the state is high. So the state would have to intervene and essentially say, People cannot go into certain areas and live because they pose, in fact, by their intrusion into these dry areas, a fire risk and then a sustainability risk, etc. And you will not be able to have a swimming pool just to chuck it in and tease the Americans. And everyone thought this was uh, so off the, the table that it was, uh, I, I must have been sort of joking. But Logically, I hope anyone listening to all this will see that is the challenge going forward. If the science is very uh, the scientific evidence that the fires will become more intense, the droughts more intense, you have to take action. Then, when I talked about emission reductions, the Americans would talk about emission reductions as more technology and the notion that you can have driverless cars and car sharing. But in LA, the evidence is very clear. Uh, carpooling, Uber, etc., has in fact not reduced uh, uh, car populations and streets. Some people argue it has increased it, in fact. So then if you're looking at emissions controls in the United States, it's about more technology. So when I said to the Americans, if climate change is the reality that you're seeing in this state, you might have to take some dramatic actions. For instance, you might have to quadruple the price of gasoline. And everyone looked at me like, you're crazy. Because in that, that is not even the realm of a policy uh, option. Because no American president or governor is going to say, we're going to increase the price of gasoline, not even by 10%. In fact, every political uh, leader uh, tries to commit to reducing the price of gasoline. But the sustainability challenge in that area, if you're committed, and these are supposed to be some of the smartest people on the East Coast, on the, on the West Coast of the United States, etc., will require pricing in the externalities of essentially carbon consumption. That is not thought about, let alone removing cars off the street. So I think this, this is the, the, the ideological struggle 
and the inability to essentially intellectually separate these issues that I found uh, in the United States and uh, almost uh, amusing but also frightening. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a contrast with uh, your podcast the other week on China and how you were talking about the ground up individual behavioral changes yes. that the Chinese government actually successfully managed to enforce. It sounds like something similar is going to be needed. But generally, US, I would interrupt. Yeah, I'd say if, both in America and Canada. The, Ameri- the Canadians, when I spoke about this, it just says, my God, we've never mm. even thought about it. Uh, because the point I made is you have to make sacrifices. In the rich countries, if you're committed to this, sacrifice is critical. But no one talks about sacrifice. Everyone talks about how we can maintain our standards of living through essentially uh, intervention with technology, but no sacrifice. The Canadians at least said, you're right. How are we going to do it? I don't know. The American view, and I'm generalizing here, is no sacrifices are needed because somehow we'll find a way. And I think that's in a very you know, uh, nutshell the, the difference. But both Americans and Canadians found the concept of sacrifice very, very new and difficult in the sustainable discussion. Because, of course, I put that in the context for the rest of the world, 80% of the world, it's not sacrifice. It is the majority of people in that part of the world getting access to the basic needs, which is basic human rights. Yeah, very different pivot points there. Thank you very much, Chandran. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Now, if you're interested in the work that we do at GIFT, please check out our website at global-inst.com or our Facebook page. Just search for The Interruption by Chandra Naya. Thank you. We return you now to your regularly scheduled program. 